You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. In the year 1844, my father sold out and in May started to move to the state of Texas. Crossed the Mississippi River at Green's Old Ferry, came by way of Jackson, Missouri, and traveled the old military road made by the government troops in removing the Cherokee Indians from the state of Alabama to their present location. The only road leading west. Um, Since there's some time, I want to read to you some bits that I have gathered um, and could be used in the episode. You know, one of them is this fellow, William Monks, who was a union man in the Missouri and Arkansas, northern Arkansas area during the Civil War. And as you can imagine, that was an area where the Confederates had at least nominal control. So he had a difficult time of it. And his book has a lot of stories in there. Let's see if I can get a year. I believe he wrote it in 1900. 1907, William Monks. Yeah, he fought the war, and he also had to fight the Klan after the war. But it's not, you know, that part of it is actually not what is applicable, at least to this podcast. So I I think I'm going to just read a section that talks about more the development of the area that he looks in. And in July of the same year, 1844, learning that it was very dangerous for a man to take his family into the state of Texas on account of the Indians, my father concluded to locate in Fulton County, Arkansas. He purchased an improvement, it's a house, and located on what is known as Bennett's River, about 25 miles from where West Plains, where the author lives, is now located. The family at that time consisted of six persons, to wit, father, mother, and four sons, the author being in his 15th year. Father, being a farmer by occupation, went to work on the farm. The country at that time was very sparsely settled. The settlements were confined to the creeks and rivers, where they found plenty of water and springs. No place at that time was thought worth settling unless it had a spring upon it. The vegetation was luxuriant. The broom sedge and blue stem growing as high as a man's head. And when he says as high as a man's head, he means a man's head upon an ordinary horse. The table lands, which were thought at the time to be worthless, had very little timber growing on them, but were not prairie. 
there were what were known as post-oak runners and other brush growing on the tablelands. But the grass turf was very heavy, and in the spring of the year the grass would soon cover the sprouts, and the stranger would have taken all of the tablelands, except where it was interspersed with groves. It would have taken it to have been prairie. The country settled up, some of the settlements being 15 miles apart, yet the early settlers thought nothing of neighboring and assisting each other as neighbors for the distance of 15 miles. At that time, Fulton County contained all the present territory that now includes Baxter, Fulton, and a part of Sharp, Sharp counties, with Rockbridge as its county seat. The country at that time abounded in millions of deer, turkeys, bears, wolves, and small animals. I remember as my father was moving west and after he had crossed Whitewater, near what was known as Bullinger's Old Mill, that we could see the deer feeding on the hills in great herds like cattle, and wild turkeys were in abundance. Wild meat was so plentiful that the settlers chiefly subsided, chiefly subsisted upon the flesh of wild animals till they could grow some tame stock, such as hogs and cattle. This country was then almost a land of honey. Bees abounded in great numbers, and men hunted them for the profit. The profit that they derived from the beeswax. There was no such thing as the bee moth that would come later. Honeydew fell in such quantities as to completely kill the tops of the grass where it was open. I have known young turkeys, after they were large enough for use, to have their wings so gummed up with honeydew that they could not fly out of the way of a dog. There was no question in regard to there being honey when you cut a bee tree. If the hollow and space in the tree were sufficient, and the bees had time to fill it, I have known bee trees being cut that had eight and ten feet of solid comb that was candied and grained. Beet wax, peltry, and fur skins almost constituted the currency of the county. I remember that a short time after my father located, a gentleman came with my to my father's house and wanted to buy a horse and offered to pay him in beeswax and peltry. And as I had been accustomed to paper currency in the state of Illinois, I asked my father what kind of money peltry is. He laughed and remarked, Well, son, it's not money at all. It's deerskins. A man thought nothing of buying a horse or a yoke of oxen or to make any other common debt on the promise of discharging the same in beeswax and peltry in one month's time. The immigration consisted mostly of farmers and mechanics. Among the mechanics were coopers, who would make large hogshead for the purpose of holding the honey after it was separated from the beeswax. And a man then had his choice to either use candied honey or fresh honey. I knew whole hogsheads that were full of candied honey. When men would make a contract to deliver any amount or number of pounds of beeswax, and within a given time, especially in the fall of the year, they would either take a yoke of cattle or two horses in a wagon, and with their guns and camp equipage, go out from the settlements into what was then termed the wilderness and burn beecomb. In a short time, the bees would be working so strong to the bait that they could scarcely course them. In the morning, they would hunt deer, 
take off pelts until the deer would lie down, and then they would hunt bees. And mark the trees until the deer would get up to feed in the afternoon, and then they would again resume their hunt for deer. After they had found a sufficient number of bee trees and marked them, in the morning following they would go out and kill nothing but large deer. Case skin them until they had a sufficient number of hides to contain the honey that they expected to take from the trees. Tie a knot in the four legs of the hide, take dressed buckskin and a big awl, roll the hide of the neck in about three folds, run two rows of stitches, draw it tight, then go to their wagons with ridgepole and hooks already prepared. Knot the hind legs of the skins, hang them over the hooks, take their tub, a knife and spoon, proceed to the trees, stop their team with sufficient distance from the tree to prevent the bees from stinging the animals, cut the tree, take out the honey, place it in the tub, and when the tub was filled, carry it to the wagon where the hides were prepared. Empty their tubs into the deer skins, return again to another tree, and continue cutting until the hides were filled with honey, and then they would return home. Take the hides from the hooks on the ridgepole in the wagon, hang them on hooks prepared for the purpose in the smokehouse, and then the men's work was done. The labor of the women then commenced. They would proceed to separate the honey from the beeswax, pouring the honey into hogsheads, kegs, or barrels prepared for it, and running the beeswax into cakes ready for market, while the men were stretching and drying the deerskins. As soon as the deerskins were dried and the honey was separated from the beeswax, they were ready for the market and took their place as currency, while the flesh of the deer sometimes, when bread was scarce, took the place of both bread and meat, with a change whenever the appetite called for it to turkey and wild game. The people then had many advantages they are deprived of now in the way of wild meat, abundance of honey, and fine range. A man could raise all the stock in the way of horses and cattle that he could possibly look after. The only expense was salting and caring for them. Didn't have to be fed winter nor summer. Didn't have to feed winter nor summer except the horses in use and the cows for milking purposes. While, on the other hand, they labored under a great many disadvantages in the way of schools and churches. During the residence of my father in the state of Illinois, we had a very good common school system, and we had three months of school every fall. My father, being a farmer, sent me only to the three months' term in the fall. I had acquired a limited education before his removal to Arkansas, yet he was interested in giving his children an education himself. At that time, there were no free schools, only subscription schools. Teachers generally were incompetent and employed through favoritism not on their qualifications to teach. In a year or two, my father located, the settlement got together, and located a schoolhouse site, took their teams, hauled round logs, built them into walls, made a dirt floor, cut a large window in the side, split a tree and made it a writing desk, split small trees, hewed them, and made them benches for seats, cut a hole in one end of the house, erected a wooden chimney, what was then known as a stick-and-clay chimney, chinked and daubed the cracks, made a clapboard roof, hung the door with wooden hinges, then the house was considered ready for the school, and had the name of teaching a three-month subscription school. And very often half the pupils were better scholars than the teachers. All they gained in their education 
was by attention to study. As the country improved in population, the people improved in the erection of schoolhouses and church houses and constructed in the place of round log schoolhouse and dirt floors, hewed log school homes with puncheon floors, stick and clay chimneys. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. These pioneer settlers took great interest in each other's welfare, and the different settlements met together from a distance of 15 to 40 miles and adopted rules and customs, binding each other to aid and assist in helping any person who met with any misfortune in the way of sickness, death, or other causes that might occur. And I must say that there was more charity and real religion practiced among these pioneer settlers, although many of them were looked upon as being crude and unlettered. There was a great deal of sickness among the streams, especially chills and fever. Immigrants came in, generally in sufficient numbers to form a settlement, and I have known them very often after they had located and opened out 10 to 15 acres and put it into cultivation and broke the ground and planted their corn for the whole family to be taken down at one time with chills and fever, not even able to help each other or administrator or administer to their wants. As soon as the information reached the other settlements, for a distance of 15 miles or more, the different settlements would set a day to meet the place with their horses, plows, hoes, wagons, 
and also with provisions such as breadstuff and salts. They would ascertain the condition of the family or families and learn what they needed in the way of provision, medicine, nursing. They would then and there agree that the different settlements should divide up the time and set the day for each one to furnish waiters to wait upon them in the sickness, such as medicines, provide such medicines as needed, provisions, and everything that was necessary. Those families, as soon as they were well not being acquainted with the customs and rules, would meet them and inquire as to what amount they owed them for what they had done during their sickness. They would be readily informed. Nothing. You are not acquainted with our rules and custom. Now, we have obligated and pledged ourselves together not to let any sick or other disabled person suffer for the want of necessity and attention. And the only thing we require of you is, if any other person should move into the country and locate, and should be taken down and confined through sickness or any other cause, that you help in furnishing such aid and necessities as they may need, until they are able to again take care of themselves. As soon as it was possible, the different settlements erected church houses built of hewed timber, floored by puncheons, hewed seats, size of house generally 18 by 20 by 25 feet. These churches or denominations then were Baptists or Methodists. There didn't appear to be any antagonism or hatred existing between denominations. The doors were thrown wide open for any minister that might travel through, and they all turned out. And you heard nothing said then in regard to my church or your church. They appeared to recognize the fact that it was the Lord's church and that they were the Lord's people. In going to church, sometimes one to ten miles, they would see flocks of Turk and herds of wild deer, both going and coming. The customs and habits were entirely different from those existing now. The wearing apparel was entirely homemade. They would raise their own cotton pick it with their fingers or a, a hand gin. Women would spin their warp, spin their filling, get their different colors from different barks for menswear. The women used indigo for the main colors in manufacturing the cloth for dresses. They made mo both their everyday and Sunday wear. The women appeared to take great pride in seeing who could weave the nicest piece of, piece of cloth, make it into a dress, make cloth, and then also into what was known as Virginia bonnets. Men tanned their own leather and made shoes for the whole family. When the women were dressed completely in their homespun, they appeared to enjoy themselves, in church, in company, or in any other gathering, and felt just as independent and proud as the king upon his throne. They appeared to meet each other and greet each other, and all appeared to realize the fact that they were human, and they had but one superior, and that was God. When men met each other in any public gathering, they appeared to be proud of meeting each other, appeared to realize that they were all American citizens and human, bound together by their ties of love and affection, and the highest ambition appeared to make each other happy and help one another in time of need. Men then, as well as now, would have disagreements and fall out and fight, but the custom that prevailed among the class would not tolerate nor allow a man to use weapons. And if two men had a disagreement, one of them being a large, stout man physically, the other being a small man not equal in strength, if they were together in a public place, 
and the large one would challenge the weaker to a fight. Before he could hardly open his mouth, some man present who considered himself to be his equal in physical strength would just say to him, Now then, if you want to fight, that man is not your equal. But I am. Get your second and walk out, and I will do the fighting for the other man. I have on different occasions see the large man who is challenging the weaker for a fight reply to the challenge and say, My friend, I have nothing against you. This other man hasn't treated me right. Or set out some reason that he thought he ought to whip him. Upon which the other man would say, I don't want to hear another word from you in regard to wanting this fight, this other man. And if I do, you have me to fight. Very often I have seen the man then shut his mouth and turn away and say nothing more. Well, it goes on, and it's a great book, and William Monks is setting us up a bit because the rest of his story is going to be how this area that he so much loved and settled in would be ruined. Um, customs binding everyone would be you know, ripped apart by the recent Civil War. But given that there's so much discussion there about how uh, the beeswax was prepared and, and pelts and deerskins, I, f- I felt it might be something that I, I might end up using for the Ark of Commerce podcast. We'll see. And uh, I want to thank you for listening. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.